As you know, before the Whitney family moved to Manchester, we served up in New Hampshire at Windsor Hills Camp and Retreat Center. And one of the things we did every summer that I looked forward to happened in August. I don't know if I can say this word right. The Perseid meteor shower. Is that how you say that word? Perseid? Uh, it's near the middle to end of August usually. And normally the staff that worked for me had to be in their bunk rooms by 11. 11 was curfew and things wound down. But the best time to see the meteor shower was a little later than that. So we would find those plastic covered mattresses and we would all drag them out to the field out in the front of the campground. And then once everyone was in place, you can do this in New Hampshire, I walked over to the switch in the back and turned the street lights off. You can't really do that. They don't let you turn the street lights on and off around here. But I would turn the street lights off and we would lay in the mattresses out in the middle of this field and just gaze at the stars and watch the show. It was magnificent every year. Just as soon as you're looking in one direction, you'd see something out of the corner of your eye and the, the lights in the heavens would, would float past. And it was a, a wonderful time. We looked forward to this display of the majesty of God every year. We're gonna read a passage this morning from Hebrews 3. And in the very beginning of the passage, it, it asks us to consider something. And the word that this author is using when he says consider is an astronomy-linked word. It means to gaze at like one gazes at the heavens. So when we say consider in this passage, we're not like thinking of a mathematical equation that I'm going to think of for a while and solve. We're thinking broader, larger than that. We're thinking contemplate, we're thinking relish, we're thinking be awestruck by the majesty of. All of that is included in this one word, consider, this morning. This is Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, 
where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways, as in my anger I swore they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ if only we hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There's a promise here in verse six. We are his house if we hold firm the confidence and pride that belong to hope. We are his house, but. Time to grab the red flag. This is warning. This is the next warning in scripture. And it's a stark warning that we hear this morning. Israel refuses to embrace the promise of God. The, the warning, well, let me, let me sum it up this way. H. Orton Wiley says, Satan's word is tomorrow. Jesus' word is today. Delay always hardens the heart, and delayed obedience is no obedience at all. The warning here is several verses long, and my arm will get tired if I hold this flag all that time. So I'm just gonna lay it down here on the floor once again and proceed through the warning. The best day in the history of Israel was the day that the Israelites stood on the eastern shore of the Red Sea looking back over the west. There were over a million people in their company looking back over the Red Sea that they had just crossed that day. They no longer saw an enemy pursuing them. In fact, the threat of the enemy had disappeared. There was an actual pillar of fire and cloud that visibly demonstrated not only the glory of God, but provided direction for them. They had the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey before them. That land was going to have vineyards and olive groves according to the promise of God, and it would be theirs given to them as an inheritance. That was their best day. And then... They griped. In the wilderness, 
they didn't have enough bread, and so they complained, as if God didn't know what they needed. But they felt like they had to gripe and complain. God, why'd you let Moses bring us out here if we're just gonna starve? You can understand the tenor of the complaint. God provided manna, God provided quail, but the griping mattered. By the time they get to a place called Rephidim, they complain about not having enough water, as if God didn't know they needed water. And they complain, did you bring us out here so that we would die of thirst? And Moses struck the rock, the rock and water appeared. God answered the prayer, but the griping mattered. And then they arrive at Kadesh Barnea. They sent spies in the land to see if the land was really as good as what God promised. And the spies, at least 10 of them, came back and said, the land's full of giants. We can never successfully go in there. And they just disbelieved that God could procure that land for them. They just disbelieved that the promise would be theirs. God decided that people who did believe him were not people to be trusted because they had wicked, griping, unbelieving hearts. And God judged them. In each of these events, verse three tells us, humans tested God. They tested his patience with griping. They tested his honesty by saying, did you really bring us out here to good purpose? They tested his power by saying, we don't think you're strong enough to deliver us. And they tested and they tested and they tested God. They forgot that God had provided just a little bit before at the Red Sea. They forgot everything they learned on their best day. It hadn't been that long ago. This wasn't 40 years ago. This is a couple years ago at the most. And they just forgot what they knew and indulged the wickedness of their heart and essentially told God, it's just not enough. What you provide is just not enough. Do you remember the words of Jesus after he's baptized and he heads into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil for 40 days? Think of those numbers, 40 days of tempting for Jesus, 40 years in the wilderness. There's an affinity there. And Satan tempts Jesus in particular ways and Jesus responds to Satan, thou shalt not test or tempt the Lord thy God. This is what they're talking about. This stuff right here, where Israel tested and tempted God, saying, you're not enough. You can't deliver. Israel refuses to embrace the the promise of God, and God sends them away back into the wilderness where their lives become futile. They now have no direction. They now have no destination. They now have no purpose. They're supposed to be traveling north 
to the promised land. They're supposed to arrive at Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. They're supposed to be a worshiping community demonstrating the power and provision of God to the people and nations that surround them. Instead, they get a look at the promised land and they turn around and they head aimlessly away toward nothing, griping instead of worshiping. That's the exchange that happens in this passage. That's why hardening of the heart is so dangerous. When God speaks and gives direction and invites obedience, if we do not embrace what he has to say, we are left with nothing, headed nowhere. That's the warning of the passage. Those Israelites wandered in the desert until they dropped like corpses into the sand. They wandered in futility, their lives became meaningless, and so our author says, quotes the Old Testament but repeats, today, right now, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. If I had the energy, I'd be waving the red flag feverishly. Today, right now, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. In fact, he gives some very specific advices starting in verse 12. Don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. Believe what God promises you is true and deliverable. Don't turn away from the living God. Don't lose faith. Don't stop trusting Don't let your friends turn you away from the living God, and don't let your friends turn away from the living God. It's easy to get swept up in the momentum of the crowd and lose your way. Don't let it happen. Pay attention to the deceitfulness of sin, he says. Realize that sin and vice are your enemies. Don't get comfortable in their company. Don't condemn yourself by what you approve. Temptation is dangerous because, by its very nature, we are easily enticed. I think you understand that Satan never tempts you to do things you don't want to do, right? He never tempts you in areas where you're strong. He doesn't tempt you to go murder, because we're not murderers, we're not any of us going to murder but maybe fudging a little on our income tax to our advantage. We might be tempted to do that. And the temptations that we experience, unfortunately, are custom made by our adversary to entice you. That's what the devil does. That's what it means when he says he goes around roaring as a lion, finding who he can devour. He knows our weakest points, and he always attacks at our weakest point. And so if we just take sin lightly and think, ah, it's no big here, no big deal, a little bit here, it's not going to matter, we're fooling ourselves. Sin destroys us. It is deceitful. And we have to pay attention to it. The last thing it says in those verses 12 and 13 is that we are partners with Christ. 
We have resources in Christ. We have an ally in Christ. If we stay connected to Christ, then we can be confident of victory. But our confidence is not in our ability to succeed. It's in our connection with Christ. The penalty and reward of this warning, of this red flag, is articulated in chapter four. We're going to arrive there two weeks from now. So I'm just telling you, this is a work in progress. We're gonna to get to the full expression of the, word, the reward. But in the meantime, I think it's wise for us to explore the instruction given here, nestled inside the warning. I think it's really important to remember that if you don't pursue the instruction of God and the promises of God, you end up moving in the wrong direction and you take other people with you. This grieves the heart of God and amounts to wicked behavior. You know what it is to... um, not pay attention to what God's asking of you, don't you? I mean, you've heard, you've heard the voice of God and sort of scuffed your feet a little bit and thought, that's not particularly convenient at the moment or whatever, and you start this internal dialogue with God about, about your obedience and why this doesn't make sense right now and why it would be better at, The minute you find yourself in that rationalizing cycle inside your head, you should see the red warning flags going off. This is your deceitful heart telling you, maybe God doesn't really mean for you to obey that completely. That's that's the seed of potentially an unbelieving heart. And that's something that we have to be careful of. We have to remember that if we turn away from the voice of the living God, when we disregard his voice, when we disregard his wisdom, when we step away from the church, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we don't want to be in that place. You know, if you don't, if you don't value your friends enough to warn them of the consequences of ignoring God. Now, I want to be cautious here. Because some folks, when they deal with their friends, think that to effectively warn them, they have to try to convince them to be exactly like they are. That's not true. The goal of the Christian church is to not make clones of everyone so they would be exactly like us or exactly like the Nazarene church or exactly like this expression of Christianity. That's not our goal. Our goal is always to encourage our friends to look to Jesus, right? And to encourage them to adopt an attitude of repentant humility before God. And that can be expressed in lots of different ways. And I'm not saying that our practices don't matter. They do. But when we start trying to convince our friends that they should practice the way we do, rather than convincing our friends that they need to embrace a living God, 
who has a claim on their life, we get the cart before the horse, right? We, we, we've got to care enough about our friends to encourage them to join us on this journey. But we have to be careful enough to make sure that the influence doesn't work the other way around and we end up following them on their directionless, aimless, and purposeless journey that they're on. That happens enough times. We make some friends, we like the activities, we get involved with them, and before you know it, they've pulled us away from the church, they've pulled us away from our godly friends who encourage us to follow Christ. That's a warning we have to take into mind. We have to remember that our job is to influence others to pursue Christ because it matters. We have to consider the fact that sin is deceitful. Otherwise, we open ourselves up for failure. You know, I'm a lousy guitar player. I only know three chords and I can't play them very quickly. But one of the things I learned when I was trying to learn how to play the guitar was that until you develop these calluses on the end of your fingers from pushing down the strings, playing the guitar always hurts. It hurts your hand until you develop these calluses. And the calluses insulate you from the pain. That's what calluses do. Calluses form on parts of your body where there's frequent rubbing or pressing, whatever, to insulate you, to make you less sensitive to the pain. The problem in our walk with Christ is if we don't listen to the voice of the Spirit, every time we gripe, every time we doubt, every time we don't embrace the promise, we start to build this callous on our heart. And we desensitize ourselves to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And the more we disobey or walk away or don't pay attention, the harder and harder that callous on our heart gets and we desensitize ourselves to the Holy Spirit. So when you hear the author of scripture waving a red flag saying, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, that's exactly what he's talking about that callous that grows and grows till we get to the place where we're completely insensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I don't don't know about you, but I think there are times that, well, maybe they're not as important or as big as the day Israel stood at Kadesh Barnea and looked into Canaan and sort of said, God can't deliver the promise. But I think in smaller ways, I get to that point from times. There are are things that I need to do to stay in step with God. Apologies that I need to make when I've been harsh, or when I've meddled in something I should have ignored and minded my own business, or, or words I should have spoken to encourage, but I didn't. Sometimes my attitude is just lousy, and I need to ask forgiveness. There are times in the aftermath of something like that that the Holy Spirit says to me, hey, what was that? 
And I say, oh, nothing, it didn't matter, it was nothing. That very statement, ah, it was nothing, is the first step towards hardening my heart. It's saying, I don't need to listen here, I know best. I've seen it in others, and I've done it myself. I forget that sin is deceitful. I rationalize away the significance of the wrong that I have done. I procrastinate doing what God told me to do to make a situation right. I'm not sure how what God hinted I should do will be received. And so since I know better than God, I'll just wait and see if it still makes sense later. I don't want to lose face. I don't want to create unnecessary problems. And, and this kind of hesitation, this kind of des- delay, this kind of not believing and not trusting snowballs and the callous can increase and in time it has the power to ruin everything because unless I confess and obey the calluses grow greater my sensitivity will lessen and it will get harder and harder for me to hear the voice of God and when I can't hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to me Paint a big target on my back for Satan because I am right, ripe for the picking. It doesn't have to be that way. We can repent. We can pick up obedience at any moment. Now, I will grant you there are times when delayed obedience doesn't permit us to pick up from the same location because water goes under the bridge and time changes and obedience may have to look different at a different season in life. But when my delay in obedience makes it impossible for me to now obey, then I start at the foot of the cross again and I say, Lord, what does obedience look like for me today? How do I obey you today? How do I get to the place of obedience today, and the Holy Spirit is always faithful to answer that prayer. Because it is his strongest desire, we know this, it's his strongest desire that we be reconciled to himself. He wants to reconcile us, he wants to embrace us, he wants to direct us, he wants us to have purpose, he wants us to have a clear destination. We can repent. Jesus will always gracefully respond when our goal is to obey. You know, we, we have a direction. We've been given a direction in Christ, which is to walk through this life in the company of the Holy Spirit, embracing those around us for the sake of the kingdom. We have a destination, we know we have a heavenly home, and we know we have a purpose that while we're on this journey, that our job is to glorify God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And in that process, 
God is doing his reconciling work in the world. And as we stay in step with the Holy Spirit, we always have direction, destination, and purpose. But if we harden our hearts, as they did in the rebellion, as they did in the desert, we lose direction. We're headed nowhere. And we're futile. We're purposeless. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And remember, today is always Jesus' word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are our hope. You are the one who gives us direction, who appoints our destination, who joins us purposefully as we walk through this life. And it is our desire to respond to every word your Holy Spirit speaks to us. Forgive us for the times we have failed to do so. Remove the callous from our hearts. Give us hearts of flesh that beat after you. And help us from this day to pledge ourselves to your obedience that we might have an abundant entrance into that heavenly kingdom. And now may God himself equip you with everything for doing his will. To his glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.